Welcome to Illum Radio. I'm your host, John Lovering, and this is a different kind of oldies program. Oh, sometimes we play old-time radio shows that feature top songs of the era, but mostly we play many different genres from the golden age of radio from roughly 1935 to 1957. Mysteries, westerns, comedy, variety, suspense, game shows, soap operas, and many, many more. On this track you're about to hear, I am featuring a show entitled The Five Mysteries Program, not to be confused with the five-minute mystery programs. The Five Mysteries Program was an audience participation radio series broadcast on the Mutual Broadcasting System from August 1947 to March 1950. Each 30-minute episode featured five mini-mysteries dramatized by actors, organ music, and sound effects. Solutions to each mystery were then suggested by a panel of listeners and studio guests. The panelists sometimes shared common backgrounds. For example, a panel might be made up of police officers or school teachers, nurses, business folks, bankers, barbers, who knows? But that's what they used to do once in a while. The cast members include Jackson Beck, Stats Cotsworth, Michael Fitzmaurice, Timmy Heiler, Abby Lewis, Frank Lovejoy, and Ian McAllister. The organist was Rosario. While the idea of the program was quite simple, the mysteries were well written, requiring some thought to come up with the right answer. People had to listen to the story, evaluate the clues, and at the conclusion, they matched wits with the sleuths to correctly identify the suspect. It was one of the few interactive radio shows. Participants actually could win big money, like $5. That was big money back in 1947. So ALM Radio now presents a rebroadcast of the Mutual Radio Network program, Five Mystery Programs from August 24th, 1947. So here come the five whodunits. Good luck in solving the cases, and thank you for taking your valuable time to listen to this podcast. I do not take it for granted, and I do appreciate the support because you, dear listener, is why I do this podcast. Thank you. Five Mysteries Program. Five five-minute mysteries solved by the five mystery minds. Five, four, three, two, one. The mysteries have begun. Mystery number one is just about ready to start, and this week's five mystery minds chosen from our listening audience will hear part of the story, the mystery part. Then when all the recorded evidence has been presented, all the clues assembled, we'll ask the five mystery minds to present their solutions one by one with their reasons. Then we'll get back to the mystery and hear the detective's solution. The five members of our mystery panel have their ears glued to the studio loudspeaker, and we're ready for mystery number one, The Corpse Gives the Clue. Well, Inspector Keats, back so soon... Thought you were out at the Sheridan estate working on a case. I was, if you can call it a case. What do you mean? Did no man Sheridan get any threatening letters after all? He's decided they're just from some old crank and wants the whole thing dismissed. Wish I thought it was that simple. Somehow those letters are just a little too sinister for a crank. 
And I don't doubt Sheridan's got enemies aplenty. Yeah, he isn't exactly the nicest guy in town, from what I've heard. I'll get it. Police headquarters, Keith speaking. Mrs. Sheridan? What? Dead. I'll be right out. Now, Mrs. Sheridan, if you'll just think hard and remember all the details. Uh, you were in the room when it happened, huh? Yes. And Jenkins here? I was upstairs laying out Mr. Sheridan's thing for bed, sir. I see. Where were you at the time the shot was fired, Mrs. Sheridan? Over at the far end of the room by the fireplace. Mm-hmm. I was sitting in that large chair with my back to my husband. Then you saw no one enter the room? No. Charles, Mr. Sheridan, had said a moment before that he thought he heard someone out in the patio. He went to the French door and looked out. Next thing I knew, a shot was fired. I heard Mr. Sheridan groan, and when I turned around, he was laying there on the floor, just as he is now, flat on his back, bullet through his heart. It's awful. You didn't touch the body? Well, of course not. I, I couldn't. And you, Jenkins? I heard the shot faintly from upstairs, sir. And uh, I ran down immediately, but Mr. Sheridan was already dead. Yeah. Just one more thing, Mrs. Sheridan. Uh, this bump on the back of the victim's head, is there any way you can explain that? Why, I should think that's simple enough, Inspector. It no doubt occurred from the force of the fall. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. I hadn't thought of that. Inspector Keats, you've got to find out who did this awful thing. I won't stay in this house another minute. You see, just this morning, I got a threatening letter. Now I'm frightened for my own life. Yes, Mrs. Sheridan, I can see how you would be. The jury is apt to be pretty determined. Jury? I don't understand. Then allow me to make myself clear, Mrs. Sheridan. You're under arrest for the murder of your husband. The corpse gives the clue, case number one to solve on today's five mysteries program, and which of our five mystery minds would like to try his or her hand at a bit of detective work. Now remember, panel... The first one to present the correct solution wins five dollars. Does anyone wish to try? Mr. Middleton. Uh, Mr. Sheridan had the lump on the back of his head and he fell on his face. Mrs. Sheridan said that she hadn't touched the body. Well, now the body is lying on its back as the detective is looking at it. The body is lying <clears throat> on its back. The bump is on the back of the head. Oh. <clears throat> Mr. Murphy. Well, Mrs. Sheridan uh, said that she was, uh, Mr. Sheridan was sitting backwards. And uh, yet, uh, when Mr. Sheridan heard a noise outside, he went out to look around. If uh, Mrs. Sheridan had him to his back, how did she know that he'd looked around? Well, that's a point. Mr. Epstein, do you have any ideas on well, the subject? I'm inclined to be part of what he said. You're inclined to agree with Mr. Murphy? Said, yeah. But not fully. How about our former policeman, who is one of our panel, Albert Brown? What do you think? When a man is usually shot, how does he fall, Mr. Brown? It's according to how he's shot. Now, he's shot there. To me, it looks like a suicide. It looks well, he, like a tumble over to me. This man is shot through the heart. Well, he shot could have shot through himself the through the heart and still had fell over and caused the lump on his head according to the fall. Uh, Mr. Middleton. Uh, he was looking out the French doors and probably leaning forward. I imagine he would have fallen forward. That sounds plausible enough. And if he had fallen forward, would not have received a bump on the back of his head from the force of the shot. Is that your view on the subject? That's my idea. Yeah. Well, uh, another thing I can say this. A man yes, Mr. Epstein. Be dizzy uh -huh. and fall backwards also. 
A man because could it happens dizzy. to me sometimes. I get dizzy sometimes for a moment, you know, or I bump into somebody. And the position I was in, I should have kind of went forward, and I feel I'm going backwards. Well, now, I'm making a misstep. Which of our five solutions is the correct one, and which of our five mystery minds wins the five dollars? We'll find out in just a moment as back to the drama we go for Detective Keith's solution. Under arrest? You can't arrest me. If you'll pardon my saying so, Mrs. Sheridan, I think I already have. Mr. Sheridan was not shot unexpectedly by any mysterious visitor, and the position of his body is proof enough. It may interest you to know, Mrs. Sheridan, that contrary to any movies you might recall seeing, a person who suddenly dies while standing, whether from bullets or otherwise, invariably falls forward. Mr. Sheridan is very neatly stretched on his back. And now, Mrs. Sheridan, what about that bump on the back of the victim's head? I... I knocked him out from behind before I shot him. I see. Too bad you didn't leave his body as it fell, Mrs. Sheridan. Instead of arranging it so neatly, might have saved you a little trip tonight, a ride in Black Mariah. Mr. Middleton, our student from Princeton, wins the $5. He came the closest to the solution. The fact that the bump was on the back of the head and a man who is shot usually falls face forward and uh, does not fall over backwards from the force of the shot unless it's a pretty powerful bullet. So we award you $5. By the way, Tom Middleton, you aren't majoring in criminology at Princeton by any chance, are you? (laughs) Well, that brings us to mystery number two, titled Time for Murder. Seventh Precinct, Lieutenant Brennan speaking. Uh, Police, Dr. Stanley has been killed. I'm his dental technician. They took all the gold and knocked me out. Well, what's the address? 395 River Avenue. And I got it. Now, hold everything. We'll be there. And Danny, let's get going. Anything serious, Lieutenant? Serious? Brother, this is murder. And Dan, have a look around while I get some information from Mr. Crutchley. Okay, Lieutenant. Now, Mr. Crutchley, just tell me the story so that we can get into action. Well, Dr. Stanley's last patient left rather late. It was almost 8 o'clock. The nurse was gone, too. And where were you? I was back in my laboratory. And what happened? I went into the operating room to look at the time on the electric clock. Was the doctor there? Yes. I said goodnight to him, looked at the time, and it was five minutes after eight. Five after eight? Yes. I I turned around to leave the room, and suddenly all the lights in the house went out. And then what did you do? I told Dr. Stanley I'd go downstairs to the basement to look at the fuse box. I groped my way in the dark... When I got there, someone slugged me. It must have taken me about a half an hour to come to. Uh, did you stay down there after you regained consciousness? No, I groped around, found the main switch, and turned it on. Then I went upstairs. Was Dr. Stanley alive then? No. The men had killed him, opened the safe, and taken all the gold while I was in the basement. Everything looks okay around here to me, Lieutenant. Ah, that's fine, Dan. Uh, have a look around the operating room. And while you're in there, see what time it is. It must be nearly time to report to the precinct. Right, Lieutenant. Uh, what did you do after you came to? Do? Why, I called you immediately. Then I waited outside for you to get here. Hmm, that's a complete enough story. Hey, Lieutenant. It's eight minutes after nine by the clock in here. Eight minutes after nine? Yes. Well, that can't be so. Oh, that electric clock always keeps perfect time. Uh, well, let me have a look at it. Sure. Uh, come on in. Eight minutes after nine. Uh, you're right, Danny. I call the precinct. What'll I tell him? Tell him to send the wagon. I'm booking Mr. Crutchley here for murder. 
Time for murder. Mystery number two. You five mystery experts have heard all the pertinent facts. Why did Lieutenant Brennan arrest Crouchley, the dental assistant, for the murder of Dr. Stanley? What was it in the story that gave him away? Albert Brown, our former policeman. He gave the wrong time, according to what I figured out. He said he was knocked out about a half an hour. He was unconscious. That's true. And uh, he and the call came in was 8.05, and when the detective looked at the clock, it was 8.09, so he was wrong there. Well, what do you... Why was the clock wrong if the time was eight minutes after nine? Well, he claimed that the clock was out of order, but I think he said it back himself. Well, now, he claimed... Uh, let me repeat the story a bit for you. He claimed that the lights went out. This is an electric clock. He claimed the lights went out. He went downstairs to replace the fuse. That's right. While he was down there, he was slugged, and he was out for a half hour. He came to replace the fuse went back upstairs and called the police immediately. Now, a half hour has elapsed. Well, the clock one, uh, the clock uh, was uh, eight minutes after nine. That's the time the clock uh, stopped. Well, the clock is running and keeping perfect time, Mr. Brown. <laughs> I, I know that, that, that there's something wrong there. He made a mistake by uh, saying that the wrong time. I know that he's the guilty one. I know that, but I just Well, well that's figure. true, because he, he has said, I arrest uh, Mr. Crouchley for the murder <clears throat> of the doctor. We haven't heard from our woman mystery expert as yet. Mrs. May Solomon, do you have any ideas from the housewife's point of view? No, I don't. Uh, may I repeat <laughs> the story a little bit for no, you? Maybe I... that would help you. He says that the lights went out he went down the cellar. Now, this is five minutes after 8 o'clock. He went down the cellar. He was going to replace the fuse. He was knocked out for a half hour. He replaced the fuse. He came back upstairs, and he saw that the dentist was dead, and he called the police. The electric clock is keeping perfect time. How about uh, Mr. Tom Murphy? Well, how would the clock keep good time if the electric clock and the fuse was out? Wouldn't the clock automatically stop, too? Well, now we're getting close to the solution. It sounds very plausible. Mm -hmm. Work on the solution. Uh, how about Tom Middleton? Well, if he was out for half an hour and called the cops just after he'd come upstairs, the clock, uh, if he, uh, the uh, clock would have registered only the time during which the, after the, after which the fuse had been fixed. The clock, in other words, you say, would be a half, it would be a half hour, hour, would show a, a discrepancy of a half hour and not be keeping correct time. That's right. Mr. Epstein, do you have any ideas on the no, subject? I'm balled up about that flag business. <laughs> that, that's really got you all, all <laughs> the time. Listen, instead of saying something which I I'll admit wouldn't sound uh, plausible, I'd rather not say anything. I admit I'm balled up about the clock. All right, we'll see now I'm if your talent for detection oh. compares with Lieutenant Brennan's as we return to the story. Lieutenant Brennan, I gotta hand it to you. But I don't know how you did it. That's uh, very simple, Danny. The Crutchley fellow had a good line of blarney. And for a while, he had me believe in some of it. But when you told me the right time from that electric clock, I knew he was guilty. <laughs> I, I still don't get it. If the lights had gone out all over the house at a few minutes after eight, the clock would have stopped at the same time. He said the lights were out for half an hour. Now, it stands to reason that the clock would have been at least a half hour slow if it was the self-starting kind, or if it was the kind that needed to push to get going, it would have showed five minutes after eight. Hmm. 
Crutchley evidently didn't have much experience with electricity. But he'll get some when he's in the electric chair. I'm going to have to split the award on that. I feel it only fair to award Albert Brown half of the $5 prize and have him split it with Tom Middleton, our student from Princeton. Albert set us on the road that led to the clue that gave it away, the fact that the clock was keeping correct time. He didn't quite express it. Here's a very intricate story now, and I caution you to listen closely to mystery number three, Air Raid. Three men are seated around a green cloth table. There is a tenseness in the room as the chips and cards fall. Well, that cleans me out. Tough luck, Marshal. How much did you lose? Every penny comes to over 10,000. Well, that's the game. Too bad, old man. It's amazing how you kept drawing those cards, as if by magic. Uh, let me see them for a minute, Harry. Hey, hands off. The game's over, Marshal. There's the air raid signal. Let's get out of here. Hand over those cards, Sean. Hey, give me those. You... Well, I... I must have been blind. Marked cards. Why, you dirty shark! Stay away, Marshal. I warn you. Stay away. Give me my dough. Get back. Get back. Give me my... I warned you, sucker. Harris, you're a fool. Take it easy. The guy committed suicide. Couldn't take losing all that dough. Come on. We gotta figure out what kind of a story to feed the cops. Now let me get this story from the beginning. Well, Inspector... We were having this card game, and Marshall was losing pretty heavily. When the air raid signals began to sound, I suggested we quit for the night. Yeah? What happened then? Well, he took us to the door. Was he angry? No, that's the funny thing. Well, after we promised him a chance to get even tomorrow night, we left. Uh, where did you go then? Hey, why all this questioning? The guy bumped himself off, you know. Oh, it's the usual thing after poker suicide. Uh, you don't object, I hope. Oh, no. But... Fine. Now, you were just leaving the room. Go on, Harris. Right. All right. We went to the lobby, but the warden outside wouldn't let us leave the house. Yeah, we uh, kidded around with the desk clerk for a while, too, remember? Yeah, yeah, that's right. We drew the blackout curtains in the lobby for him, while he threw the switch dousing the upstairs lights. But when we saw the raid was taking so long, we came up here again. Go on. When we got to Marshall's door and knocked, there was no answer. Oh, that got us worried because we knew he was in there. Well, after knocking again, we broke in, and there he was. It wasn't a pretty sight. His head was all bloody, and he was slumped over the table. Anything else? No, that's about the whole story, Inspector. Well, gentlemen, it's been an interesting story, but the curtain's down now. I'm holding the two of you on a murder charge. Well, panel, there you have Air Raid. Mystery number three, and there's just one little discrepancy in the story told by Harris and his confederate that enabled the police to pin the murder on them. And it looks like Tom Murphy has a solution. Well, if it was a blackout and these two gentlemen came into the room, how did they know that his head was bloody and how did they know it was such a mess if it was dark? Albert Brown, you seem to have something to add to that. Well, it looks to me I heard the bell go off. I mean, the siren... And they said that they spoke to the clerk. There was no clerk around. Well, they went down. They said that they went downstairs to the clerk, and they helped uh, him draw the blackout curtains while the clerk threw the switch for the lights to put the lights out in the whole building. 
Mr. Epstein, do you have anything to add no. to that? What do you think of uh, Mr. Murphy's solution? He says that if there was a blackout on when the men went back to the room, they would not have seen the body lying on the floor. Well, if there they... is something to it, but this doesn't tell the thing that you want. You can have your curtains drawn and still you can have light in the room. No, but you uh, have your main light switch thrown out downstairs in the hotel by the hotel clerk. You remember? That's right. Well, he wouldn't have to help the clerk because the clerk himself would throw it out automatically. Well, that's what I say. So it seems as though Mr. Murphy's uh, solution sounds fairly plausible. That's right. Yeah. Mrs. Solomon, that's well, right. from the house, uh, housewife's point of view, what, what do you have to say? Does I that make sense to you? Yeah. If the main light, light switch is out, uh, then the lights would be out, and these two men would have broken down the door, <coughs> looked in, and, and wouldn't have seen anything. Well, that seems to make the, sense. Will, will, you, will you say that there should be more to it? This is the nearest, you say that, right? Well, this sounds plausible. Yeah, does it sound plausible to you? Yeah, it does, yeah, but you, you say there should be more to it? I don't say a word. I, I can't tip you off too well, much. No, I'm, I, I can consider myself through. I'll you tell know? you what we'll do. We'll go back to the scene of the crime at this point in our Five Mysteries program to find out if your powers of deduction are correct. That's a big thing to say, Inspector. Murder. I'd rather not have an encore, Harris. You forgot one little detail, gentlemen, that left your story wide open. About the blackout. The desk clerk downstairs threw the switch to turn off all these upstairs lights. Yet you told me that when you broke into the room, you saw Marshall's body slumped over the table. Now, your vision in the dark may be good, but not so good as to see blood streaming down your victim's face. Let's go, gentlemen. This time your alibi's been blacked out. <laughs> Mr. Murphy, I congratulate you on a fine piece of detective work and award you $5. By the way, does your position as, as traffic manager, you said you were a traffic manager, help you out in your detective work? Well, we have to look for a lot of lost things, <clears throat> a lot of lost things in my business, and I guess oh. this was one of them. What, what is your business? <laughs> uh, traffic management. We're importers, and we import wood pulp from a foreign country. I see. It's all over the United States, and a lot of that paper can get lost. Part of your work is looking for missing freight cars and whatnot? That's it. Well, here's another opportunity to compare your wits with the police. Mystery number four, the premature clue. Oh, hello there, Inspector Clark. Good evening, Miss Alice. What a pleasant surprise. Aunt Hester was just speaking of you this afternoon. Come in, Inspector. Thank you. Matter of fact, she telephoned me. Wanted some advice, she said, about her will. Then come along. I suppose she's still in the study. Where's your sister this evening? Oh, Evelyn's gone riding in that roadster of hers. She'll be back before long. I've been upstairs all afternoon. Dozing, I'm afraid. Here we are. Aunt Hester, Inspector Clark is here. Why, the study's dark. Aunt Hester! Switch on the light, Miss Alice. <gasps> Knife in her back. What's this? A, a sorority pin clutched in her hand. Inspector, what's the matter with Aunt Hester? I'm afraid it's too late, Miss Alice. Here, let me lock the study door. Your aunt is dead. But I demand that something be done to find her murderer, Inspector Clark. Evelyn, tell him to do something. The police are doing all they can, Alice. Where were you this afternoon and early evening, Miss Evelyn? 
why I went for a ride about two o'clock and had tea at that old mill inn out on the Valdosta Road. Yes, and Miss Alice here was sleeping most of the afternoon. Hester was sitting at her study desk. And what have you deduced from all that, Inspector? Nothing of great importance. The knife with which the murder was done, however, belonged to you, Miss Alice. I didn't kill Aunt Hester, Inspector, if that's what you see. What good is questioning us who loved her? Why don't you unlock the study door and look for clues or whatever detectives look for? Don't be impatient, Alice. The inspector has already gone over the room thoroughly. Maybe the little sorority pin he's found will help lead to the guilty party. We must have patience. But there must be something. There is something, Miss Alice, that tells us who killed her. You were very, very clever, Miss Evelyn. But I'm afraid I'll have to arrest you for the murder of your aunt, Hester Vanderpoel. Premature Clue, mystery number four, and it's a real challenge to your deductive powers, Mystery Board. However, if you follow the story closely, you should be able to come up with the correct solution. Mr. Epstein, what do you think? Well, I'm still thinking. <laughs> you remember the characters. Evelyn was the girl who was yes, away in her car for the day. Alice was the girl who was at the house with the, the inspector when he came over to look at Aunt Hester Vanderpoel's will. Mr. Murphy. I can't compete with Mr. Murphy. <laughs> Mr. Murphy seems to be our leading detective today. What do you think? Well, I don't, I don't know if uh, if Alice, if the sorority pin belonged to Alice, perhaps this uh, woman, Aunt Esther, who was killed, perhaps she made a grab for Alice's and grabbed her pin off her. And that's how it was clutching her hand. It's been established, Mr. Murphy, that the knife and the sorority pin belong to Alice. Mm-hmm. Evelyn was the girl who was away. Now, let me repeat a bit of the story for you. You remember that Alice and the detective went into the room. They were going to go over the will. They went into the room. They saw the body, then came out, and the detective locked the door immediately. Then Evelyn came home, and the story went on from there, and the detective mentioned the knife, and then Evelyn said, well, maybe the sorority pin will will lead to the killer. Mr. Middleton seems Evelyn to have an idea. wouldn't have known about the sorority pin. So Why is that? The door was locked and she hadn't been in the room. That sounds very plausible. <laughs> and here, let's return to our story, the premature clue. Let's return to Inspector Clark, who at this point is speaking to Evelyn Vanderpoel. You owed money, including a few gambling debts. Yes. I asked Aunt Hester for an advance on my allowance. She wouldn't give it to me. Then she said she was cutting me off, leaving most of her money to that sorority, the Alpha Chi's. Came back from my auto ride about five o'clock. Parked the roaster down near the grove. You intended to make it look as if Alice had done the murder. That's why you inserted Alice's sorority pin in the dead woman's hand. You were too clever, Miss Evelyn. A little while ago, you suggested the pin might be a leading clue. I wondered how you could possibly know I'd found it, since the study door has been locked. From the time I found the body. Unless to point suspicion at your sister. You put the sorority pin there yourself. Well, Mr. Tom Middleton, with a little repetition of the story, on my part, you did come up with the correct solution. You see, he locked the door when he came on, and he didn't mention the sorority pin. However, Evelyn did bring up the sorority pin, and how else would she have known? That seems to make sense once you hear it, doesn't it, mystery boy? That's Doesn't right. it, Stein? Yes, Are you all set for mystery number five? <clears throat> Revenge with flames. 
But I tell you, Mr. Tyler, if these fires keep up, I'll be ruined. I'm sorry, Mr. McMillan. We can't pay off any of the insurance until we've found the cause of these fires. It's very unusual for two different pieces of property owned by the same man to go up in smoke within a month. Well, there's, there's still my country house in Ashbury left. Thank heavens I've been spared that. Well, good day, Mr. Tyler. Uh, please call me if there are any new developments. I will, Mr. McMillan. Good day. Yes, Miss Smith? There's a call for you on 308, Mr. Tyler. Oh, thanks. But uh, first, Miss Smith, get Inspector Simmons on the phone. I want him to inspect the McMillan house in Ashbury for fire hazards. The McMillan house in Ashbury? But that's your other call, Mr. Tyler. It's just been reported on fire. Quite a mess, isn't it, Inspector? Did you find anything of importance? We certainly have, Mr. Tyler. Look at this. The charred remains of oil rags in several of the rooms. I knew it. I knew it. These fires aren't pure accidents. How much damage is there? The left wing seems to have gotten the worst of it. Nothing left untouched but the south wall in this private elevator shaft here. Mm, yes, I see. The elevator is still standing up there on the third floor, so the cables obviously weren't even singed. Look at this. I'm ruined. I'm ruined, I tell you. Calm down, Ernest. Calm down. Raving isn't going to help. Oh, here's Mr. McMillan and his sister-in-law, Miss Hammond, Inspector. Inspector Simmons would like to ask you two a few routine questions. Well, go right ahead, Inspector. Anything to get this mess cleared up. Miss Hammond, I understand you were the only one in the house at the time of the fire. That's right, Inspector. Ever since my sister, Mrs. McMillan, died, I've stayed out here and kept the house running for Ernest. I'd like to know exactly what happened, Miss Hammond. Well, I hadn't been feeling very well, and I went up to my room on the third floor to lie down about five. Go on, Miss Hammond. I fell asleep, and not until my room was filled with smoke did I wake up. I was terrified and ran out into the hallway. The whole place seemed to be in flames on the front. So I turned and ran for the private elevator. As soon as I reached the bottom, I ran out to the summer house and phoned in the alarm. And did you return to the house at all, Miss Hammond? Not until the fire was out and you had arrived. Oh, see here, Inspector. Just what are you driving at? Just this, Mr. McMillan. This fire was no accident. It was started deliberately. I think I know now who's responsible. You do? Yes, Miss Hammond, I do. And I'm arresting you, Miss Hammond, on a charge of arson. Revenge with Flames, mystery number five, and what made Inspector Simmons decide that Miss Hammond was responsible for the fires. There was something in her story that gave her away. Mr. Epstein, you seem to have an idea on the subject. Not an idea. Do you remember her story? Do you remember the inspector's story? He said he uh, came into the building after the fire. The elevator was on the third floor. Does that give you any hints? Mr. Brown. Yeah, she said that she took the elevator down to the street. That's a uh, fine bit of deductive power. Go on and from the there. the elevator was on the third floor, so she must have set the place of fire and getting out because she didn't want to get burned. She said she came down in on the elevator, the, in didn't In the elevator, she? and the elevator was on the third floor when they found the fire. And the floor. elevator would have been on the first floor That's when the detectives right. had walked in the house if her story had been true, really? and obviously it, it wasn't true if that was the case. Does that make sense to you, Mr. Epstein? Excuse me, Mr. Uh, Mr. Solomon. Yeah, and then she said she was asleep. She said she was asleep. She said she, was she, said she woke up and smelled smoke, came downstairs, and ran out. <laughs> well, we're going to pick up the thread of our mystery show and discover which of our five amateur sleuths has come the closest to discovering what Inspector Simmons' clue is. But I, I don't understand. 
Jesse responsible for all this? Just a minute, Mr. McMillan. Miss Hammond, you said you came down by way of the elevator. But when we arrived, we found the elevator to be on the top floor and not at the bottom, where it naturally would have been if you'd been telling the truth. No, Miss Hammond, you weren't so rudely awakened by the fire because you started the whole thing. But you no doubt will be rudely awakened now, Miss Hammond, because you're under arrest. Our former policeman, Albert Brown, came through with a winner. That leaves the score at the end of our Five Mysteries program with Tom Middleton, the student from Princeton, leading the group with solving two and a half, winning $12.50. Albert Brown, one and a half, $7.50. Tom Murphy, who won $5. Morris Epstein and Mae Solomon didn't come through. However, we invite them back and maybe we can do something for them later on when the show goes on. And there you have the five mysteries program. Five five-minute mysteries solved by five mystery minds. How about you being one of our mystery minds one of these Sunday afternoons? Just write to Box 5, care of WOR, New York 18, and we'll enroll you in our panel. Tell us why you like mystery stories. We'll select the mystery minds for the five mysteries program from your letters and postcards. And listen again, won't you, same time next week to the five mysteries program. The mysteries and the music are transcribed and recorded. I and our mystery minds are not. Remember when you hear the number next week. One, two, three, four, five. It's the Five Mysteries Program. One. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.